and in documentary making terms, you had kind of stories to tell. You were all children of or grandchildren of people who'd been forced to leave Assyrian areas over the last hundred years. And so you expressed the story that we were telling in a sense, and the fact that you wanted to come back, and the fact that you lived your lives abroad now, and you expressed the problem of migration. Hi everyone, it's Nora, back for another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Today's episode is pretty special for me, because as I'm recording this, I'm back in the beautiful homeland in Mardin once again. As I sit by an open window in Khaininova Hotel, looking out as the sun sets on the courtyard of Umrik Marhirmas, I'm reminded of my trip two years ago when I saw the homeland for the first time. While my two guests today are also from London, England, I met them in Iraq of all places back in 2018 on the Gishru trip, the kind of birthright pilgrimage for Assyrians. Instrumental in making the BBC documentary Last Christians, director Jeremy Bristow and reporter Ellie Malky tell me all about the film and how it came to be made. They've had some very exciting and sometimes pretty scary experiences in the Middle East, which will not come as much of a surprise to anyone acquainted with the region or the plight of Assyrians. While it's not easy viewing, sadly it never is when it comes to the situation of Assyrians in the Middle East, the documentary is also a beacon of hope and a point of pride for us when our people, who continue to suffer so much trauma with ongoing attempted ethnic and religious cleansing, still have such resistance resilience and zeal for their homeland. It is this that gives them the strength to make a stand and refuse to leave in spite of the endless persecution by those who occupy and terrorise our lands. This in itself is something I personally am in awe of and so admire and I love that among the open wounds Ellie and Jeremy captured this spirit for the world to see. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Tony Caligarakis and the injury lawyers of Illinois and New York. If you know anyone that has been in a serious accident, please reach out to Tony Caligarakis. Tony has been recognized as a top 40 lawyer and a rising star by Super Lawyers Publication and has obtained multiple multi-million dollar awards. Tony can be reached at InjuryRights.com or 847-982-9516. Now, let's hear from Ellie Malki and Jeremy Bristow. I'd like to welcome today my two guests, Jeremy Bristow and Ellie Malki. Hello. Hello. Thank you for joining me today. Most welcome. What would we say in Assyrian then? Shlama Lochon. Okay. So that would be sort of hello. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Shlama Alechi. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Jeremy, just tell us a little bit about your career and how you started working in documentaries. Well, I've been in television since the kind of early, mid-1980s, uh, since I left working in the city because I got bored with it. I had a, a very privileged time, really, uh, working in all sorts of areas from natural history filming through to current affairs, business, the environment, history uh, and politics, and to some extent, religion. So I have, I'm, I'm a kind of a slight, in terms of subject matter, a jack of all trades, really. However many years that is now, nearly 40 years of television experience. Oh, wow. So Ellie, how about you? How did you start working in television? Well, actually, television wasn't my first, if you like, career. Before, I used to work in archaeology, and for a long time, actually. And then uh, I moved to Britain, and then I started in TV. I had this nice opportunity to work in BBC uh, Arabic. So I mostly produced uh, arts and culture programs, and sometimes also worked on current affairs. And then, suddenly, my life took a turn for the better, I think, and uh, I was sent to work with someone on a documentary to kind of start working on, in the documentary field, and that someone was actually Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. so did you guys meet in London, or you met in the Middle East? We met in London. Right. 
Yes, we did meet in London, but uh, it was a Middle East-based project that we were working on yeah. at that time. Yes, we worked in Doha together. Was that a similar kind of subject matter, or that was something different? I'd come to the BBC with an idea about Qatar as a country on the edge of environmental plausibility, as it were. I mean, how can two million people live on an arid peninsula where most of the aquifers have been drained over the last 30 or 40 years and what pressures that puts on that society and economy? Fortunately, they suggested that I work with Ellie as the reporter. And, you know, Qatar is a, is a fairly different place than, let's say, Iraq. It's more, you know, modern, tamed and all of that. But, but it was good for someone like me who was just starting at that time. Okay, when was that? In 2013 or 14, if I still remember well. So how did you come to start working together on The Last Christians? Because it's so difficult filming in Qatar. Ellie and I, in a sense, had long periods of not being able to do very much because we didn't have permissions, etc., etc. And we got tired of filming beautiful shots of the tower block. So we discussed everything, really. And I've always been interested in archaeology and history. And I think that out of that conversation, I think we were talking about Syria and then the Assyrians came up. And I think Ellie said to me, you know, that there was a massacre, that many of these Assyrian Christians were massacred alongside the Armenia in Turkey uh, or by the Turks. And tens, possibly hundreds of thousands died. And I didn't really know about that. And so we got on well together and we just wanted to push to be able to make that documentary about that issue and to some extent about the Assyrians. And Ellie, being from Lebanon, has much more of a, an understanding of the region and the people than I do. Because I think his surname Melki is also known amongst the many other Assyrian people with that same name. It's the same, I guess, Assyrian origin in terms of the name, Ellie. Yes, it has the same kind of uh, roots. It's a very, if you like, Canaanian and... Assyrian and uh, Aramaic common roots, yes. Yes, of course, and lots of families are mixed. So it's a very common family name in Middle Eastern Christians, yes. So, Ellie, how did you start learning about Assyrians? I'm assuming you, you knew that sort of growing up. It was a familiar region, familiar people. Yes, it was, actually. And the thing is that, I mean, in Lebanon, we have an Assyrian and, you know, other Christian minorities, mostly from Iraq. Also Armenians, of course, and all of them, we used to hear about stories from them, how they, they come from these countries, they were kicked out. And uh, some of them actually used to say that they come from Turkey, today's Turkey, which is surprising because you might, because they, they were Arabic speakers, so you would imagine that they come from Iraq or Syria, but then also we heard about Turkey. And then since also I studied history and archaeology, so it kind of pushed me towards knowing this kind of common heritage that we have. Also, I mean, later on we might come to this uh, story, is that I have a relative I discovered on the lake that one of my ancient relatives, if you like, was kind of martyred in Turkey in the midst of these communities during the genocide events. So it kind of drew me closer to that. And when we were talking with Jeremy at that, during these times about the subject, actually, it was also in the frame of trying to find subjects about the First World War. Because at that time, 2014 was like the centenary of the beginning of the war. So it kind of came up like rather naturally like this. But this is a very familiar subject for me, at least since I was, it was like a teenager or something like this. Because again, also, used to have lots of friends who would say, I'm a Syrian or from you know, Syriac origins or something like this. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so that, that was something I wanted to kind of understand more and explore more. Right. So how did you guys sort of, once you had the idea, you talked about it, how did it kind of come to fruition that you guys managed to start making the film and work with the BBC? Well, Ellie was working with the BBC and I had worked for the BBC for 21 years before uh, leaving it in 2010. And we were pushing the idea, but then of course in 2014, ISIS arrived and that rather scuppered much of the interest in the Middle East and and don't forget BBC Arabic documentaries can only do a certain amount of subject and their kind of Iraq interest, Arab speaking world interest became preoccupied with ISIS so we had to wait several years before any kind of opportunity to push the idea again, Uh, yeah, because of ISIS. Right, okay. I mean meanwhile I worked a bit, I worked partially in Iraq. I mean, like for uh, during just the year before we went to, um, to to do the last Christians, 
And it was, again, it was around the time when ISIS was really like taking over everything. At that time, it was impossible to go anywhere. And at that time, it was, it was the time actually when people were being expelled and ISIS was taking, took over Mosul and all of that. So uh, I think it was very difficult to work in this condition. Right. So when you guys got the green light and you started, what were your thoughts in terms of going to the region, especially the situation that was very fresh? And did you have any sort of reservations or concerns? No. BBC being the BBC is incredibly careful, cautious, does its research. You have to spend a lot of time assessing the various risks that one takes. So we knew to some extent we were going to be kind of well cared for, that we'd have an experienced, as they call it, an advisor, but somebody who is used to military violence situations and can handle himself in these situations. We had somebody with us who, fortunately in a way for us, I think was a local, was an Iraqi citizen, because the one thing we didn't want to do was sort of stand out too much. So we had an ex-Iraqi army guy as our kind of security advisor, and also a local fixer come driver who was Kurdish, but who knew very well how to deal with film crews in that area and was well connected with the Iraqi military, which was very important for us. So I didn't feel too frightened. I felt, in a sense, rather exhilarated by the prospect of having the chance to see what we were about to see. Yes, it was the same thing for me, actually. I was terribly excited, honestly, to go see this. And there was no worry about the security situation because just as Jeremy explained, we are well surrounded, taken care of. The BBC has a policy of not taking massive risks. And I've done it the year before. The year before I was in Iraq, the situation was really dire. And still everything was done by the book and there was no real kind of scare, you know. And after all, this type of environments, you have to like to work in them or not, you know. So right. no one forced my hand or, or <laughs> certainly Jeremy's hand, you know, just to go there. And that's why, so we were kind of really keen on it. It was, it, it was actually something that we've been waiting for for like four years at that time. Right. Was there a lot of interest at the BBC in doing a documentary about Christians or about Syrians, or was it just sort of an interest in the region? I would say first, you know, minorities at that time, people were talking about minorities mostly from the position of Yazidis and all of these minorities that were attacked and all of that. But I must say also, there's lots of people didn't know really a lot about Assyrians and the rest of the other minorities. So, of course, the people who have certain curiosity welcomed it. The others were kind of, yeah, okay, let's see. But, you know, it's not easy to get commissioned. So you have to have a really strong story. And I think why, when we explained it to the editors over there, I mean, we found kind of a certain interest. And this is why they commissioned it. But they don't commission subjects just like routinely, if you like. It has really to be something strong, a strong story, and something that will shed a light on something that usually the public doesn't have an idea about. Right. How did you end up meeting the Assyrians that you ended up working with? There were quite a few people in the documentary, actually from London and from the US, that um, were kind of featured with you guys. How did you come into contact with them to begin with? Well, interestingly, we'd done quite a lot of work before, and we got one of the things that happen when you're filming in a place like that is things do change. And so we were very, very excited about filming with, I think they were Syriac Assyrians, as it were, from the Sinjar region. And we were particularly interested in them because they were from families who had left what is now Turkey, from homes in Turkey, and had to move south into what is now Iraq as a result of the SAFO, and then had to be pushed out again by ISIS. And well, it's one of those unfortunate situations that we, we'd made contact with these families and they could, in a sense, inscapulate the whole hundred years of the history of Assyrian people because they'd suffered from the SAFO and they'd recently suffered yet again. Mm-hmm. And we were all set to go filming with them when President Erdogan in Turkey announced that he was going to bomb the Sinjar because of the presence of the PKK there. And it was decided it was too dangerous to go. So we had to suddenly throw up all our cards 
from what had seemed like a really strong story involving certain families that we could trace back, etc., and reinvent it. And we happened to be staying in the same hotel as as you guys. For those listeners that don't know, there was a group of us on the Gishlu trip, and that's how we actually ended up meeting Jeremy and Ellie in the Hook, and ended up all being a part of the documentary. So originally a different group of people that you had already formed contact with. Yes, we were going to film with them. It was going to be several weeks before we were going to get permission to film there. I think we probably could have done it and we probably could have got away with it. But the risks were deemed to be too difficult. So suddenly we had to, you know, we're there. We couldn't just sort of pack our, you know, you can't just pack your bags, go back to London and wait again. So in a sense, we were, we were Ellie and I took the judgment that you lot also expressed in a sense some of that history through what you've been you've been through um and in documentary making terms you had kind of stories to tell you were all children of or grandchildren of people who'd been forced to leave Assyrian areas over the last hundred years and so you expressed the story that we were telling in a sense and the fact that you wanted to come back, and the fact that you lived your lives abroad now, and you expressed the problem of migration, how that it's maybe more it's so enticing for Assyrian people if they've got relatives in the United States, Sweden, Australia, Germany, to go and live in, or Britain even, to, to go and live in those countries where it's a lot safer than carry on being so vulnerable in, in the Middle East. Ellie, had you met any Assyrians in London that you ended up seeing in Iraq or Turkey or kind of making that connection? No, actually, surprisingly, I met lots of Assyrians here in London, mostly, you know, in events, in conferences and anything like this. But no, no, they were not the same ones that later on we connected with uh, over there in Iraq. And uh, yeah, and then to add to what Jeremy says, actually, the, the important thing is that you guys, you know, the the Gishru people were also gave to this documentary something more like a life experience, the experience of real lives, instead of only relying on some kind of cold historical approach that many documentaries take. You know, and that was, I think, very, very interesting in this regard. However, of course, we had contacts with people already in Iraq that we ended up by seeing later on. Right. Yeah, I mean, it was really exciting for us when we came into contact with you guys. It just seemed to you know as cheesy as it sounds be like fate that we were all there at the same time obviously you guys had already met with other Assyrians that were there but in terms of the Gishlu trip I don't think you were were either of you aware that there was such an organization or such a trip no No. I wasn't (laughs) what was a shame had we been we could have gone to Turkey with you as well but the trouble was the slight problem was we were doing the documentary for BBC Arabic. So one of the slight issues was, it was one thing following a Syriac family that spoke Arabic, as well as Syriac, but it was a different thing. You guys spoke your own language, but not so many of you spoke Arabic. So that took us slightly away from, as it were, one of our core audiences, because we were being funded to make this film by BBC Arabic, not the BBC in general. Right. And so that restrained the way we could work with you. I think we would have probably, had we not had that constraint, we could have made it gone into your lives far more, really. And we'd have probably found you earlier because we wouldn't have been driven by the Arabic-speaking element of it, if you see what I mean. Right. Which got blown away when we couldn't go to Sinjar. Yes, because BBC Arabic also insisted on having people who the audience can relate to through language. People who are descendants of Iraqis who actually don't speak Arabic also looked a bit kind of confusing sometimes for them. There are quite a lot of languages actually in the documentary and dialects. So I think there's Arabic, Turkish, uh, Syrian, and Surin, Kurdish. Yeah. So was that a challenge finding My people? My God, it was a challenge. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I, I don't think we ever got over it, really. <laughs> it, was, it was a lot. It was a lot because you can imagine in terms of the time it takes with the different dialects, etc., 
And you came in and helped us, Nora, at, at one point. I remember you coming after your work at about six o'clock. And it's quite a time-consuming process, isn't it? Yeah, it definitely was. But it was great for me because obviously it was a subject matter that I really cared about. And, you know, I was there while you guys were making the documentary as well. So it made it extra special. And being able to work on the translation so that other people would be able to watch a documentary about Assyrians was a great experience. Ellie, how did you find that? Because obviously you speak Arabic. Do you speak any other languages? No, I, I mean, honestly, I can understand a few words here and there of Assyrian or Syriac. Because in our liturgy in Lebanon, we have the Western variant, the Syrioyo. We don't have the Eastern one. Mm-hmm. So I can get the gist sometimes when people are speaking, but I cannot really speak it, you know. But I get the names, I understand, let's say, some expressions and what's going on in a way, vaguely, of course. I'm limited to this. But for me, it was fantastic because this is a language of that I used to have, I mean, I used to hear in my childhood. And this is our liturgical language. I come from a family of priests. So this is something rather familiar. I used to see it written. And, you know, sometimes even in Strangelo, in some kind of documents that we had at home that were passed on from generation to generation, including some kind of like amulets, you know, so that was a bit sentimental for me to listen and to hear this this language. Yeah, no, I can imagine it would be (laughs) quite cool. Because I think Ellie does have an, have this understanding, and he doesn't pretend to be able to speak all the languages. But on Easter Sunday, two thousand eighteen, we were in the town of Al Kosh, which is mainly what one would call uh, Chaldean. And we filmed, we only used a bit of the song in the film, but in the actual document, in the finished documentary, we used a bit of a solo, male solo singer. But I was filming and one could hear this liturgy. And of course, I'm not understanding, but I am filming people singing, etc. And Ellie, who was standing nearby, tapped me at one break in the proceedings, I think, and said, do you know that some of the language, the cadence here is older even than Aramaic? It's pre-Aramaic. You know, this is a kind of sonic archaeology. And this is why I think there's still so much to do and there's so much still to say about the Assyrian and Syrians as a people is that they are the custodians through their culture of something even more ancient than their own language that goes back thousands of years before the birth of Christ. To me, these moments were magical. That was one of the great highlights of our time there. Yes, this was really a magical moment because, again, Good Friday is such a poignant and, you know, like very emotional moment. So the thing is that it sounded, everything sounded like if you have, you have so many texts, you know, ancient texts from Babylonian, Assyrian, even Sumerian texts, you know, they have a form of litany. When you read them, you might see, you would suddenly feel that actually what's been actually said about Christ and the way it's is addressed and when they're talking about his death, it's very similar, actually. It sounds like exactly in a sonic way, like those ancient texts and those ancient rhythms. And it's absolutely, I mean, it's very, very likely that the root is the same because you have become the custodian, actually, of this whole tradition, of this heritage. And there's no reason to believe that this is not an indigenous Mesopotamian, if you like, heritage that, that still carry on by the, the local churches through Christianity, mostly. But honestly, that uh, just like Jeremy said, I mean, these are, these are one of these moments that you will remember all your life, you know, really. Yeah, no, I can imagine. I mean, even for me to actually even just be there, be in the land and see it finally was just such an amazing experience. And then obviously with you guys doing the documentary at the same time, just kind of added another layer to it and definitely something that you'll, I will definitely remember for the rest of my life. So Ellie... Obviously, you come from a Lebanese family, Lebanese background. Did you notice any sort of cultural similarities among the Assyrians that you met in the Middle East? Yes, of course. I mean, it's it's this kind of common Middle Eastern heritage. And also, again, when it comes to the identity, because since I come from this Christian Eastern environment, so there were lots of things 
has kind of, you know, reminded me my childhood, reminded me the way we live in Lebanon, you know, like the parish life, if you like. So we were talking about, I mean, there's the prayer evening. You can see the whole community coming together, the importance of, if you like, the parish, the religion, and faith is a very important thing. Even you might see people who are not really probably, you know, have a deep, extreme faith, but it's a communitarian, if you like, approach to things. And I, I, I felt this, this belonging to a community. The sense of community was very, very strong in Iraq, much stronger than in Lebanon, actually. Oh, wow. In yes, what sense? Because I think if, in the sense that it's your identity. In Lebanon, there was less fear of kind of losing this identity or less fear about the future. Of course, it's always lingering in Lebanon in the last 30, 40 years for the Christians over there. But in Iraq, it was so close. I mean, you can feel the threat is there. You know, you have a knife under your throat. Whereas in Lebanon, the existential threat is rather, you know, less acute than in Iraq. Right. Jeremy, for you, was there anything that you thought was quite interesting or anything that stood out for you in terms of the culture or the experience? I think the closeness as a a Brit, as somebody who brought up in London, and brought up with the Anglican liturgy, and but also brought up with the Bible, that being so close to where it all happened, or so much of it happened, having people who had been keeping a tradition for so long against so much adversity, and the fact that it was still, still there, still hanging on, that people were tilling fields that their ancestors had tilled. I think you briefly on your trip went to the village of Ha, in Tor Abdin, but didn't, weren't able to stay too long. But we went there a couple of times, and to meet the mayor there, Habib, whose family had been in that village since, as it were, time out of mind. And we first encountered them tending their vines in the fields, and the fields were full of stone walls, uh, were led to by stone walls that had probably been there for thousands of years leading to a kind of a fortified um, farmhouse where several families had lived, which had survived and been besieged, but had survived the Seifo. And yet then finding that Habib was somebody who was a calligrapher and was preserving the the, uh, Aramaic Syriac writing and could write so beautifully in terms of this being a custodian of culture again and being so close to something so ancient it was that overall feeling of encountering that and encountering something that went back thousands of years that there are churches built upon temples to to astarte to ancient people worshipped before Christianity arrived there. And it's the same people. I mean, just that being there was so impressive. Yeah, I mean, that's so cool to hear. Obviously, when you're in the community, you're brought up with it. It's sort of second nature, but it's really cool and to hear people's experiences that are sort of just coming into contact with it because it's it's obviously not something that gets a lot of traction in everyday life or that most people that you meet will kind of be aware of. In terms of the title that ended up being chosen, there are a few people that were kind of surprised that it was called The Last Christians and wasn't directly titled about Assyrians. Why did that end up being the title? If you said Last Assyrians, many people, most people wouldn't know what one was talking about. Right. You have to get your audience in there. And although a lot of people did complain about it and said, you know, there are Christians all over the place, etc., you do have to be able to make sure people watch it. You know, if you want people in the United States to watch it, they're not necessarily going to know who the Assyrians are. But if they see Last Christians, they might go, well, wow, you know, what's this about? Where are they, the Last Christians? Just to add to what you're saying, exactly, because if we said Last Assyrians, some people might think it's a history, uh, you know, documentary. And we are also, since we are in BBC, it's a news channel. So we have to relate to, you know, in a way, current affairs. And around this time, we know that the Christians were persecuted in Iraq. So, and alongside Yazidis and other minorities. So that's why it made more sense from a journalistic point of view, if you like. Right, okay. I guess, yeah, that would make sense. 
So what were your uh, experiences when you were making it? Was there any challenges that you found specifically or anything that was sort of really interesting? I mean, there's so many different experiences that were the, the positive experience. I mean, one of the more positive was driving into Mosul on the back of a pickup truck. Ellie was sitting with the military commander of Nineveh province, General Al-Jaburi. And I was allowed to go on the back of this pickup truck and drive into eastern Mosul on the back of this was exhilarating. And then to be able to get to what was and will be again, I guess, the shrine to Jonah, which is now a Muslim shrine, but it had been a monastery. And whether or not Jonah lived there, we don't know. But what we do know is that beneath it, and it was known for some time, was an Assyrian temple. And ISIS had dug tunnels there and actually looted. We don't know quite what was taken. But in those tunnels, there were still these giant pieces of stone which were carved with Assyrian figures and that down in these tunnels is one of those again another totally lifetime memorable experience as well as that there were the great sort of lion bull figures buried under there and to see them underground and that they'd only just been revealed after 2,700 years was extraordinary and it was a slight bit of Ellie and I being in Indiana Jones for a while um, <laughs> <laughs> and, and one of the great things about doing that was that that didn't make it into the documentary it made. But we were able, with the help of colleagues, to turn it into a special 3D experience where you can go down the tunnels and see what they were like and hear their history. And I think BBC won awards for the story, for the piece that was made about the tunnels. One of the frustrating times was the fact that the anti-corruption police came to arrest us for filming in there Oh, and fortunately we'd left but our colleagues were still there and we spent some time trying to get them out of prison and one of the academics that took us there was in prison for several days oh, as a result or was that the area with Jonah's tomb yes yes yeah. that's crazy yeah, yeah, exactly. It, it adds, actually, it, it kind of encapsulates Iraq in a way. I mean, so <laughs> yeah, much history true. and so much, so much terrible things happening and <laughs> so much violence and at the same time, so much culture and civilization. So all of this on this hill, if you like. Yeah, really, as, as Jeremy describes, it was such an incredible experience because you're diving practically. You're going down in these tunnels and running around. And actually, we knew that they found already some lamasus, you know, these winged bulls. Yeah. But at this point, actually, we were just kind of moving around and some tunnels collapse overnight because they're not scaffolded, you know, they're just like wild. And uh, suddenly we fall on this new one. I mean, that was, as Jeremy said, the Indiana Jones moment. This is the first time you see something that no one saw since maybe 700 BC, you know. So, yeah, wow. so that was really, really a very important moment for us. And just trace the tendons in the leg of the Lamassu. Exactly. I and mean, you can touch them and see them and it's just there in front of you exactly like Leonard or uh, you know like some some ancient archaeologists when they discovered the, these sites it was really exhilarating honestly and uh, worth everything you know but unfortunately of course we had to contend with the problems that uh, happened to our colleagues so fortunately not, no one was hurt I mean as much as we know but one of them remained for a long time in jail Wow was there any other backlash from people in the area I mean Ellie obviously you were speaking to people in Arabic as well so there were non-Assyrians also in the documentary, obviously. So was there any tension, anything that was difficult? Well, actually, the situation was tension. It's not regarding our presence over there, but mostly regarding the site itself. Because just like Jeremy mentioned, this site was built on, I mean, it's an Islamic shrine today. But at the same time, it's an Assyrian royal palace. And at the same time, used to be an ancient Assyrian monastery. So, and also there's some problems between Shia and Sunni about who's going to be the custodian of this place. So there was lots of issues around that. And you come over and then you just intervene and all of that. Sometimes some people don't like this situation, especially within the administrative, if you like, administrative authorities in, in Iraq, because people also have some turf issues about authorization. Who's going to be the one who's going to protect this place more than the other? So, of course, I heard some things like this, but fortunately it didn't affect us a lot. Right. In general, when you were making the documentary, though, when you were sort of traveling around, around and different regions did you feel like there was any animosity from you know 
either the local governments or people that you came into contact with when you were filming? No. I think if some of the Kurdish authorities have been quite aware of the story we're going to tell about land grabbing in northern Iraq, in, in what's called Iraqi Kurdistan, I think if they'd known what we would be saying about it and the evidence that we'd gathered, they might have been more upset with us. But I think we managed to stay under the radar, as it were, in terms of what we were doing there. And so avoided any seriously difficult situations. In Turkey, it was more difficult. And, mm -hmm. and we really did have to be under the radar there. Right. Um, because going into some of the villages where there were still Assyrians, or which had been Assyrian, but have now been taken over by Kurds, and possibly the same Kurdish people whose forefathers had massacred the original inhabitants, this was pretty difficult. And we could have, if we weren't careful, we could have got into a difficult situation. So we had to be, we had to, we had to tread very, very carefully. Yes, in Iraq, we didn't, we didn't have, again, it's just like Jeremy said, we didn't have really a big issue with, with the attitude, like a hostile attitude or anything like this, besides a few moments, you know, of tension. However, after the film went out, there was a couple of articles in some Kurdish, I think it's one of them is like a Kurdish news website, and they were attacking me personally. <laughs> actually, wow. they just, yeah, yeah, they were saying like, um, I mean, actually it's done by a Iraqi Christian, and so it's not by a Kurdish person, you know? So it was like someone, you don't understand us, you come from, I don't know where, from Lebanon, and then you start trying to impose on us your ideas and all of this. And, uh, you know, there's not the ten there's no tension between Kurds and Assyrians, and this is all like propaganda and all of that. But that was the main one of the articles. There were other ones that were very favorable, you know, more like some remarks in, uh, on websites, on chats, on forums. But I, remember, I still remember that one that named me personally you know <laughs> like uh, like some someone who's trying to give a false image of what's happening in Kurdistan right yeah I mean you're always yeah. gonna have those kinds of yeah, people and it was in Arabic it was in Arabic actually the article was in Arabic and I think they specifically wanted it to come from someone who is not Kurdish let's say so, right. Yeah. No, I mean, there's always going to be those kinds of things yeah. going on. You know, and it's an opinion, and you have to, you know, <laughs> not everyone's going to have a consensus about everything. So, right. I just can't imagine sort of Assyrians that are aware of really what's going on in the region and that have no associations or employment with other organizations. Anyone could say that these things are not happening as they are is extremely sketchy, but um, mm. something I think we've become accustomed to as Assyrians. So the non-Assyrians in the region that you guys came across, what were their opinions on what you guys were doing? Were they interested in also, did they want to tell their story? Yeah. One of the most significant things, I think, and it's in the film, I think one of the most moving moments was when we uh, interviewed General Al Jaburi. Yes. And, of course, he was speaking in Arabic, so Ellie was only able to explain this to me afterwards. But it's where he says, well, the Christians and, indeed, the Mucides, they're the ancient people. They're the original people, and they are part of the mosaic of our country. And it was this acknowledgement from a senior Sunni figure... And the way he put it, I, I thought was terribly moving, didn't you, Ellie? Yes, very much, actually. It it's really came out, I mean, it, it sounded authentic. And then we knew later on he went even to attend Mass, actually, to just visit the bishop, I think, over there during the Easter Mass. But also there was another thing going on over there. And this is also was very interesting because we saw I saw a delegation of, I think, Mosul University who were coming to the general because he's kind of heading everything. It's not only a kind of military. It is more like a region governor at that time. And they were just talking about preserving Assyrian heritage. I could hear them, you know, and they were saying, no, we should do this. We should kind of refurbish these canals that we found over there and these statues and all of that. So they were talking about it as Iraqi heritage, but they were talking about it also as Assyrian, you know. So it shows that even the Muslims over there kind of, you know, acknowledge the fact that this is their roots. And these communities actually are the living proof of that, actually, they're, they're living roots, if you like. Yeah, it, it could be interesting to see the relationships between all the different people in the region. Were there any other challenges that you came across during the process throughout, from start to finish, when you were deciding to make the film, the well, whole process? 
going back to the safety thing, I mean, one of the big problems we had, and when we were with Al Jaburi, this, I mean, he said, look, come with me, I'm going to go to the Christian Kalakosh, to this, I think it was a Chaldean mass there. Yeah. And we thought, brilliant. I mean, brilliant. I mean, this is what television's about. Let's go. But then the security guy says, look, you've got to be back. It's like Cinderella, but you have to, you have to be back before, before sunset into Kurdistan. We had to get back to, to Hook before sunset and so we just couldn't go and that was deeply frustrating because in normal circumstances you know that would be just great television you have an Iraqi general he'd have had all his bodyguards going with him but he would have come and attended a Chaldean man in a church that had been devastated by ISIS part of the deal was that we BBC to film there you had to even though we were going to go with the military with a general I mean, we'd been highly protected you know we wouldn't have been able to get back by sunset so there was this rule that roadblocks they shut down the roads actually they closed the roads and you'll end up stranded where you are you know so if you're you know in Karakosh or something you're going to be there and it's for our security you know it's not something ideal so that's why we always just like Jeremy said, you know, I have to go back like Cinderella, you know. <laughs> At a certain time, we have to be in our base in the Hulk or wherever we are. But the idea of just running around where the event is happening is not always easy. So it's not very security-friendly uh, type of behavior. No, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, even for us with Gishu, when we were trying to go from one village to another or move about, the security issues were definitely something that was hard to get used to. You know, you're coming from the UK or the US with no similar experiences and having to stop at all these security points and it's night time that was definitely a bit of a challenge was there any time that either of you felt unsafe or you had sort of any trepidation about going to a certain area no i no. don't think so no no, no. Uh, mosul might have been but no the, the the dangerous place we ended up once was actually right up in north east kurdistan on the border with Turkey. We wanted to describe how Assyrians had had to escape the Seyfo and walk from Hakkari into northern Iraq. And we wanted to get so we could look over the border into Turkey. And what is interesting there is you can see that there are Turkish fortresses on hillsides inside Iraq. And we were filming those and they spotted us. And this is for Assyrian people particularly, I mean, this, is, this was a, these escape routes that the Assyrians had taken after Seyfo or during Seyfo, and we were wanting to film this. And we were told, basically, that the Turks were training their guns on us and that we just wow. had to pack up and go. And fortunately, our fixer was Kurdish, but he spoke Turkish as well. And he was able to speak to the Turks who were looking down through their sights at us and say, look, it's okay, we're all right, I'm with them, they're okay, and we won't stay, and we'll be going, etc." And I think people were getting a little bit jittery at that point, though we were only aware of it <laughs> afterwards. Oh, than, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but that was, that was very serious, actually, the way the guy talked about it. it they, were, they were really going to kind of hit us with something. <laughs> Yeah, if we keep on filming, yeah. I have to say, one of the really most memorable moments, every time when we were editing it, that always cheered me up was listening to you, the Gishru group, singing in the bus. <laughs> yeah, that was a fun experience. Obviously, it was my first time on the trip, but the organisers and other people that had been on the trip before were saying each year there ends up being a song that just kind of becomes the anthem for that Gishru trip. So yeah. I'm sure our listeners have heard of Deshtit Ninwe. That was the song that became our kind of anthem. So yeah, definitely remember those experiences. Was there anything that sort of surprised you? I know, Jeremy, you said that that kind of stayed with you. Ellie, was there anything else that you remember specifically that stands out? Well, yeah, of course, I mean, the whole trip was so full of these exact like, moments. But again, what I was always kind of surprised by is the way these communities are rooted over there, you know, this is so important for me. And also you guys, even the Gishru people were very surprising for me because again, what I saw in a way, it's like a recomposition of Assyrian identity because normally the people we used to talk to, they are kind of almost, they have like a dual identity, this kind of Iraqi Arab identity plus their own Assyrian identity. Whereas in your case, because you went somewhere away, you kind of dropped one of them, the Arab one, 
and you came back almost pure Assyrians. So that's always a bit of a surprise for someone who comes from a region where Christians are extremely assimilated and they have this dual identity to the extent that lots of people say like Syriacs in Syria, they will say always we are Arabs and all of that. Whereas in the way we saw you, you sounded 100% pure Assyrian, like you came back from history or something. Honestly, <laughs> <laughs> it's like because you're not rooted over there, but your language has become, you have become purely Assyrians in a way. Well, mm-hmm. at least maybe this is my perception, you know, this is this striking thing but also again it's the way things are over there i mean the profound roots the roots not only in christianity but also this mesopotamian heritage i mean this is something it's not, it's because it's something we are used to see in museums you know we see assyrians in museums or whatever babylonians and all of that and then suddenly we see them alive over there they have the same kind of almost the same language they carry on the same traditions and on this in the same place and in the same fields and you know everything is so deep and authentic almost like it's rare to see this in other parts of the world yeah actually it surprises me sometimes when i see certain assyrians usually guys when they have a certain they've uh, started doing Doing this beard thing where they kind of shape it in the same way that the Assyrian kings would and sometimes I kind of look at them and just think wow you look like you've just stepped out of the British Museum or something like that like there's a real similarity yeah it can sometimes even surprise us I think <laughs> obviously you guys were around Assyrians a lot you were in the different countries did you get a chance to try any authentic Assyrian cooking well we did in Alcott yeah. we had yeah. Of course, yeah. 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 I remember lots of peppers full of um, meat. <laughs> yeah, it was very homey, you know, it was in a home. It's not like a restaurant or whatever or something like that. It was very much in the, some people invited us over there in al It's near the Prophet Nahum. Uh, Nahum, exactly. Nahum's <laughs> tomb. So that was also something, I mean, you're, you're near something so ancient that you read in the Bible, you know, with Assyrians and you're eating something from that part of the world. Again, this is something like quite an experience, but I don't, don't count on me to tell you what was the name of the dishes we had. <laughs> I mean, if it, if I don't it was, remember. if it was pepper stuffed with rice, you said. Yeah. Yeah. Then Rock it was rice and meat. Yeah, then it must have been dolma. So that's the Assyrian dolma. Um, oh, okay, yeah. Were there vine yeah, leaves fair. with it, or was it just the peppers? I'm sure there were. The, I'm sure yes, they had, yes, uh, yeah, definitely. Food. Everything is so mixed. I mean, probably what everybody is eating there might well have come from the Assyrians originally, or from the people that were there. But every other culture has taken it on. I mean, it's so difficult to know. I mean, what is Greek cuisine or Turkish cuisine or Assyrian cuisine or Kurdish cuisine or Iraqi cuisine? I mean, so much has been adopted by so many cultures. Yeah, it can definitely be hard to figure out where one stop, one begins and the other stop. Was there anything that you tried in the region, either if it was in someone's house or anything else that you really liked in terms of cuisine? Well, actually, the thing is that we didn't stop a lot to eat. <laughs> I mean, besides on motorway, I mean, like on the road, or whatever with the security team and all of that we were most of the time honestly i mean we were just filming and we had to quickly go back to the hotel yeah. our base so lots of our food was actually in the hook so i would say lots of it is from this part of the world so it's so lots of uh, and also we had a lebanese restaurant of all types of restaurants you know <laughs> so eating mostly <laughs> lebanese <laughs> yeah. this is a bit for me not exotic <laughs> it's true it's true you see uh, we were restricted by our circumstances because yeah. because we had to get back before sunset we just couldn't have a, a dinner anywhere really and also because it was already and this was in march late march against april it was already so warm that mm. so i didn't feel much like eating at lunchtime right Unless we'd been staying, able to be guests of Assyrian people and eat with them in the evening, we, it was just not possible. So sadly, cuisine-wise, we missed out. Yeah. You mentioned, Ellie, that there was a few sort of people that came with a backlash after you made the documentary. What's been the response from the Middle East and elsewhere, sort of in the Western world, either from sort of government in the Middle East or just from media in general? I'm not sure how aware people were, like you said, it was for BBC Arabic, but have there been any other responses, either positive or negative, that have stood out? 
Yes, you see, it's not, I mean, when it comes to governments and official positions, we don't have anything kind of negative. And when it came to the Iraqi government, we didn't have any problems. Because usually we have a good working relationship with them. I mean, recently we had an issue on another topic, you know, that was more religious. But in this regard, we didn't get anything negative from them and we are in good contact. However, when it comes to the more like local media and mostly like the social media world, Mm -hmm. yes, uh, the film was seen as being anti-Kurdish. And this is what was difficult to dispel because we didn't make a film just to attack the Kurdish population or anything like this. Mm. We're just describing what goes going on over there. And if there were some Kurdish people who were actually conducting themselves in a rather nasty way against some Assyrians, we never said it's the whole Kurds, you know, the whole of Kurdistan. And we didn't put a collective image on it, you know. But unfortunately, in these times in the Middle East, and especially with the Kurds, you know, they were so afraid of people labeling them as the aggressors whereas normally they are perceived as victims right so that was the thing is that we had lots of backlash in this regard you know lots of people on social media were considering this film as being anti-kurdish or even anti-turkish because we talked about the genocide so that was of course an issue in this regard however for the rest for the more like i would say the arabic speaking audience if you like because you know most Kurds like are bilinguals especially in iraq you know all of them understand both so For the rest, the Arabic speakers, uh, usually it was more like, oh, we didn't know about that. And especially the stories like the Reto and and lots of people actually put some very favorable comments, you know, and and people understood through her the suffering of the communities. Yeah, so I think it wasn't all negative or all positive, but it depends on the perspective. Whenever you're going to say anything about, let's say, a certain group of people who consider themselves as normally as victims, and going to say that maybe sometimes they are more like on the perpetrator side, you're going to have a backlash. And everything has a meaning over there because the stakes are high. Uh, we are in the midst of, you know, a region in formation, if you like, in transformation. So, mm-hmm. so everything has an impact. Yeah. yeah. So so you, you cannot just say something just from a historical perspective only. They would always be considered as related to our current situation today. How was the documentary received in the media world? Was there, I'm not sure how much sort of exposure you guys got in it being promoted or anything like that. Was, was there a lot of response? It did very well when it went out on BBC World. I don't know what the audiences were, but I think it had very good audiences. It was marketing. It has been... See, the trouble is with the BBC, you don't know what happens to the film after you've made it. No one tells you. So we understood that it had been taken up. It's marketed through other companies, and we know that it was sold on and that it's been shown elsewhere. But we personally get no feedback from it. It's rather frustrating. The only thing I do know is that when I wrote from our own correspondent for BBC Radio about my experience, Ellie and I being in Ha in Torabdin, and I wrote a story coming leading up to Christmas. Interestingly, that had two million hits, and it was about Syriac history of there being 12 kings that came to the village of Ha. And then, only th- then three went on from there to, uh, to Bethlehem. And we told that story, and on the website, within 48 hours, it got something like 2 million hits. So we got that figure, so that was great. So we knew that did well, we knew the tunnel story did well, but I don't think from BBC World you really get figures either. Maybe you do, but we haven't. To your point, Jeremy, actually, I wrote something, you know, the one about my ancestor, Leonard. Yeah, And same thing, it, it had, like, massive hits, you know? Like, it's one of the top stories. And I was surprised, honestly, I thought it was going to be, like, one of these, like, personal stories on the side. And there's a lot of interest in this. There was a lot of interaction, you know, on the website. So that's one of the good things. You make a documentary and then you can build all these other other things around it through being there. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you said previously you felt, Jeremy, that there was a lot more to say about Assyrians and about the region. Is there any future plans either that you guys have to make a kind of not follow up, but something with the same kind of subject matter, anything that you know of that's being made? Well, Ellie and I would love to go and do the archaeology, wouldn't we, Ellie? Yeah, exactly. That's the next step. 
the stuff that's being discovered, there's a friend of ours, a colleague, the guy that we filmed with in the film, Elio Elio, and he and his uh, colleagues are coming up with more and more discoveries. Assyrian churches, of amazing frescoes, of lost Assyrian cities. I mean, there's so much to do. I mean, there's so much of interest. Whereabouts um, is that? Well, the church is, that's been found, I think, is quite near Mardi. I think it's, it's uh, a Syrian name is Kfarshin. Kfarshin. Right. You know, Kfar is village. So. And they found these frescoes of basically Assyrians carrying animals, hunting, and there's writing there, and it's kind of fourth century church wow. that's been just recently discovered. And recently a city, again, that's been discovered. I mean, you know, love to do more on that. The other thing that I'd love, and I'd love to do it with Ellie, but we wouldn't get backing from BBC Arabic today because it doesn't really involve Arabic, the Diyarbakir Assyrian Association. And these are people whose grandparents, largely, weren't killed because they were largely children. And they were taken into largely Kurdish families as slaves, converted to Islam. But in many cases, weren't allowed to forget, they were often persecuted and beaten up at school, etc., that they were of Assyrian, or often as well, Armenian origin. And the Assyrians began to form themselves into an association. And there's now a website with thousands of members of people of Assyrian descent who find themselves now effectively as kind of Kurds, but know for various reasons, either their parents eventually told them or their schoolmates told them when they were giving them black eyes, that they were something different, and now have formed this association together. And they actually now have a centre where they're coming and they're learning how to write. And this is a movement that's carrying on. It's involving lots of people. And it's something that, you know, I think is a really interesting story to do. And they're linking up with their relatives who's, say, the grandchildren of their uncles and aunts or great uncles and aunts who are now in Lebanon or the United States or Germany or Sweden. And they're linking up and kind of crossing this barrier and saying, hey, whatever we do religious-wise, we have this culture right. that is our inheritance. We want to find out about it. I have actually heard about, I'm not sure if it's the same organisation, but people that are finding their Assyrian roots. And although they're now considered to be Muslim Kurds or Turks, that they are realising that their heritage is actually Assyrian. So, yeah, it's a pretty random discovery for Assyrians as well that there are these people that were sort of kidnapped or, you know, managed to escape but then were caught that are actually Assyrians as well. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. So, and it's not an easy thing for them, honestly, because the thing that we're coming out like this, it means that they are they are abandoning, or at least they are going against like a double, like double layers of their identity. It's Absolutely. a religious one plus yeah. a cultural one. And in Turkey, this is something so frowned upon. It's so difficult these days that are kind of endangering themselves in a way. So it's not just some kind of cult cultural awareness. It's you are putting yourself in a very difficult situation. So it means that this is something that they hold so dearly. Yeah, absolutely. Are there any current or future projects that you're both working on separately or together that you want to tell our listeners about? Well, apart from the wish to do that story, Ellie, poor thing, is locked down in London and, and I'm here. So we don't... None that we're hoping to do together, that I'd love to work with Ellie again. Yes, I mean, certainly, sure. I mean, on my part, it's the same thing. The only thing is that really this, like the COVID situation was really a big, big disaster for, for any project that involves traveling and, oh, <laughs> you know, yeah. so, so that's why everything was postponed. And uh, I already had also some kind of proposals with the company to work on some, again, archaeology. Some of it is related to Assyrians in the sense that it would have been about the Assyrian presence, or at least the, the Church of the East presence and the Gulf in the pre-Islamic period. So that was like, one of these nice projects but everything now is on hold unfortunately because some things take priority in bbc like american elections and, oh and uh, hard-hitting current affairs you know but things will come back and i hope by mid next year things will come back to a normal situation and we can start probably planning something in the same vein
Yeah, I think we're all hoping that this situation will resolve soon enough. So the last question I wanted to ask you both, what was the one thing that you took away from the whole experience, whether it was beginning there, thinking about the documentary while you were there or post-filming? Is there one thing that you, you took away that made the whole experience for you? I might go back to that moment when Ellie said to me, do you realise what you're listening to? That this in, the, in this litany, there are elements of the language and the cadence of it that go back for thousands of years, even before Christ. It's this idea of the Assyrian culture still in this litany, still bearing this contact with peoples from 5,000 years ago or 4,000 years ago, way back to the midst of time, and that this is still carried on every year, possibly every week in terms of churches, maybe every day in monasteries of this ancient culture. Maybe that would be it for me. Yeah, for me, actually, it's like I came out with this kind of bittersweet feeling, if you like, at the end of the whole trip. The beautiful part of it is that this is so great to see how kind of vibrant and how kind of real all this presence is and then how people managed to kind of remain there after so much, you know, ordeals and history. And it was like really a lesson in courage. But at the same time, you know, of course, you felt how fragile things were. And that's why, honestly, I wouldn't like that this title will be, that the title of the documentary, The Last Christians, would be real, really, because I don't want it to be the last ones. You see how fragile things are, but at the same time, this you still see the hope and especially sometimes when you see the younger generation right yeah well thank you both for coming on the Assyrian podcast today I really enjoyed catching up with you guys it was thank you in Assyrian (laughs) (laughs) thank you Nora thank you Nora thank you so much I really hope that you enjoyed today's episode. On a personal note, I would encourage any Assyrian who has the opportunity to visit the homeland, all of the homeland. The places known today as Iraq, Iran, Turkey and Syria are all the lands of our ancestors and all have such amazing landscapes and our people are still there. They are, as Assyrians have always traditionally been, welcoming and hospitable, and they love it when Assyrians from the diaspora show the same passion for the land that they do. It is something that we should all experience and continue to maintain a connection with the land of our ancestors and strengthen the bond with our people there. The documentary Last Christians is now on Amazon Prime Video. Support for this week's episode of the Assyrian Podcast is brought to you by Dr. Nohren Khoshaba, an independent health mart pharmacist and owner of Bartlett Pharmacy, like Bartlett, Illinois. Bartlett Pharmacy offers free delivery and in-home flu shots. At Bartlett Pharmacy, we know you by name, not by your refill number. Call us today and we'll take care of all your prescription transfers. They can be reached at 630-855-5178 or visit bartlettpharmacy.com. Join us again next time for another episode of the Assyrian Podcast. Pushum Shena.